0: This is the RSM Orthopaedic Section podcast. We feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. My name is Akib Khan, and I'm an orthopaedic registrar on the Section Council, and I'll be your host on this podcast. Welcome. I'm joined by our new president, Mr. Michael Pierce, on the podcast today, who's going to be talking about fractured neck of femurs. This is a really interesting topic and we're really glad to have you here today. Thank you very much. Let's start off with what the trends are in the surgical management of displaced fractured neck of femurs uh, in the older patient.
1: Oh yes, well, when I was at your stage, Akib, everybody was fixing displaced femoral neck fractures in the elderly patient. And the research was all on what type of fixation, what configuration of screws, screws versus DHS and so on. But the randomized studies soon showed that replacement was far superior in terms of function as well as surgical complications than fixation. And if we just look at Leonardson's paper, which was published in the British Journal in 2010. It was a long-term outcome of hemiarthroplasty versus fixation in the patient who was 70 or older, but lucid. And by the time you get out at 10 years, amongst those that are still alive, the failure rate in the fixation group was over 45% compared to uh, 8.8% in the hemiarthroplasty group. And even in patients who'd had so-called successful fixation, they had more pain and reduced function compared to the hemiarthroplasty group. So there is no doubt that in your physiologically older patient, that replacement, usually with a hemiarthroplasty uh, is the way to go with the displaced femoral neck fracture.
0: So what does that mean in terms of undisplaced fractures? What would you consider doing in those circumstances?
1: Yes, these uh, one would think that these are perhaps a different uh, group and internal fixation is much uh, more popular. Some of these patients are uh, sicker. They have more comorbidities. They might be spontaneous fractures. They may have had a slight fall whilst they're an inpatient. And the feeling is that they need a quick operation. And of course, inserting three screws or a two-hole DHS is quicker than a cemented hemiarthroplasty. But the early comparative series suggests that those receiving a hemiarthroplasty recovered quicker and had less pain whilst walking, and again, had less uh, reoperation than the fixation group. And then Uh, Approximately two years ago, um, um, uh, Delautsky et al published a large randomized study in the American journal in 2019. There was more than hundred in each group, hemiarthroplasty versus standard internal fixation with two mm, eight millimetres cannulated screws. And again, the functional outcome was far superior in the hemiarthroplasty group, who were walking quicker and more confidently by one year and by two year, the p-value in terms of the functional difference was less than 0.004, highly significant difference. And then we look at the unexpected reoperation rate. It was 20% in those that received fixation. So that's 20% of your Uh, fixations of undisplaced fractures will fail, and will need another operation. And again, we're just adding uh, to the burden of fixation failure. So I think when you have an undisplaced fracture, you should really consider performing a hemi, rather than internal fixation.
0: Wow, so that's quite a strong argument
1: for us to really be doing one operation. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, you know, these are really osteoporotic fractures, old bones break at their ends. And fixation, you know, there's no bone, you know, particularly in the femoral head. You know, in many, many of these femoral heads are just full of fresh air. There isn't, you know, really good trabeculae to get a good purchase with your screw. So a hemiarthroplasty, a cemented hemiarthroplasty, patients can weight bear straight away. And we know from the registry studies and so on, that, they, you know, they have very little in the way of pain.
0: That's very clear. Now, an area that's a bit less clear. You know, I was on call on the weekend and we had a few referrals from A&E where we had patients coming in with hip pain, but no obvious fracture on the x-ray. How do you manage these patients? What's optimal
1: management? What will you do? Just going back to basics, um, particularly if there's a history of a fall, the patient may still have limped into the A&E and the nursing staff or the ANE medical staff may, may think they're not behaving like an osteoporotic type fracture. They may be perhaps young 60s, but remember osteoporosis, systemic disease, but often there are very few external signs of it. So high index of suspicion, the history of trauma, and then for me, gently rotating the hip with the patient's supine. Any pain, and particularly if they're struggling to do a spontaneous straight leg raise or spontaneously flex the hip, and or there's any pain on internal rotation. Any of those features from the history of the clinical exam that are positive, that's a femoral neck fracture till proven otherwise. And the only really way to prove it is an MRI scan. Sure, you can get a CT scan, which can be helpful, perhaps if you've got some changes within the hip joint, um, uh, You know, the sagittal sections, looking carefully at the neck, may show you a break in the orientation of the trabeculae, but many studies have clearly shown that MRI scans are both more sensitive and specific. They also give you a lot of information about other pathologies as well, but it may be that all you're going to see is a bit of bone edema in the intertrochanteric region. But if you have an undisplaced femoral neck fracture that you haven't seen on standard imaging, we've all seen those cases that have been discharged from A&E and they come back with a displaced fracture. So I think it's very important that that patient is investigated appropriately and all hospitals should have protocols that allow uh, quicker access to a limited view MRI scan. So that can take slightly, I think it's under 15 minutes compared to the full sequence that's normally required for a pelvic MRI scan. So really,
0: in this day and age, we shouldn't be doing any trials of mobilization or anything when we do have an imaging modality that can give us a definitive answer?
1: Well, the ideal scenario is an instant MRI. But are we going to get that in every case? No. Friday evening, you know, that may not be available until the Monday morning. It depends on the situation in your particular trauma units if you've examined the patient and you know they've got some discomfort but not severe pain or if they're able to do that straight leg raise or spontaneously flex up the hip then sure you could perhaps do cautious mobilization and repeat the imaging at 24 or 48 hours but we're not simply discharging them without you know a more careful consideration
0: thank you very much now let's Talk about a scenario where we have an older patient who does have a displaced intracapsular neck fracture. What determines the choice between hemiarthroplasty or total hip arthroplasty?
1: Well, this is a, a very interesting question. And if you look at the early Nice guidance, and in fact the current Nice guidance, it's not very specific. But you would uh, you are advised to consider a total hip replacement in the patient who is more active. And who has uh, better outco- uh, better longevity or predict- predicted longevity. And certainly, I think it was 20, 30 years ago, the Scot- from the Scottish um, hip fracture database, it was thought that if the patient was shopping positive, they probably need a total hip replacement, uh, they're going to live longer, there'd be, uh, you know, a higher chance of um, acetabular protrusio, acetabular wear, and they would benefit from a total hip replacement, the problem is that has a, a significant difference in functional outcome between hemi and total hip replacement hasn't really emerged from the randomised studies up to two or three years ago, and over the last ten years, the cemented bipolar hemi arthroplasty has uh, certainly improved, and the more the more recent. Um, outcome studies of that particular implant. If we take the Exeter, which is a a particularly popular one, but there are a number of similar stem geometries, polished, collarless, tapered stems in association with uh, 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 bipolar unit. They perform really very well. And I personally cannot remember revising such a hemiarthroplasty for groin pain, for acetabular wear, in at least 10, but probably 15 years. Um, So certainly um, the indications for a total hip replacement have become less clear cut Um, And we're very fortunate that the health study was published and that was a big study, uh, an international study. I think they collected almost 1500 patients who were all relatively active, who had a displaced femoral nerve fracture, and they were randomized to a hemiarthroplasty or a total hip replacement. It was a pragmatic study and the actual uh, implant and the surgical approach and so on were left to the discretion of the operating surgeon. But when they looked at the outcomes, they found that there was uh, a clinically insignificant difference in the functional scores between the hemiarthroplasty and the total hip group at two years, but the dislocation rate was something like 2.4% uh, in the hemi group compared to 4.7% in the total hip group. So the functional benefit at two years really wasn't there. And then more recently, there's been a further meta analysis which has conclu- had reached the same conclusion. So I think there'll be less total hip replacements being performed for uh, displaced femoral neck fractures in the more elderly uh, uh, patient than previously. That's a really good point
0: because I've worked in units where sometimes we have to wait quite a while to find a surgeon who's suitably skilled to do um, a total hip arthroplasty. So in terms of being pragmatic and actually organizing a trauma unit to provide a service for these patients, how does what you've said impact on how we should be setting up these units?
1: Well, clearly, the number of patients that stand to benefit from total hip replacement is not as large as we first thought, and we will discuss potential reasons for that. In my hands, very few patients qualify for a total hip replacement after a displaced femoral neck fracture in the presence of uh, osteoporosis. Almost all my patients will uh, receive a hemiarthroplasty. So, of course, that's going if if that is. Um, to that pattern is going to be taken up you know, by many of the trauma units, then we won't need specialist hip surgeons to perform the totals uh, in this patient group. Uh, they can receive a hemiarthroplasty, so many more will have their operation within the 36 hours.
0: Now, another question about total hip replacements. Is it reasonable for us to compare outcomes between patients who have fractured neck of femurs or those with primary osteoarthritis?
1: Well, that is what we did in the past. We all assumed that the operation of the 20th century, total hip replacement with its wonderful outcomes in patients with osteoarthritis would translate into similar outcomes in patients with osteoporosis. Now we know uh, that that hasn't been the case within the osteoporotic group, according to the health study, and there's been a number of other randomized studies as summarized in the recent meta-analysis, which was published approximately 12 months ago. If we were look, if we want to look at how these patients behave in the perioperative group, there's been a number of studies. There's one from Hunt et al. in The Lancet in 2013, and another one a year later in anesthesia, which both show a significantly higher mortality in uh, patients undergoing total hip replacement after an osteoporotic fracture compared to those having a hip replacement for osteoarthritis. So physiologically, these patients don't behave the same. Now, there have been two very interesting sort of massive papers, if you like, um, so-called big data. An American study using the data from the USA National Hospital Discharge Survey took data from over 2 million patients having a hip replacement for osteoarthritis. On average, these were age 69, and they were compared to 175,000 patients having a hip replacement for fracture of the neck of the femur. Average age was a bit older at 79. But when you looked at the Mortality, um, there was a huge difference 0.2% in osteoarthritis, 1.8% in the fracture group. Uh, Infection was six, seven times higher in the femoral neck group. Um, Dislocation was many times higher in the femoral neck group. And even the rate of PE was more than, uh, was almost three times in the femoral neck group compared to the osteoarthritic group. And then a number of years later, this was uh, superseded by another big data paper from France, uh, Le Manche et al. This was published in JAMA, high quality journal, and they took over 300,000 hip replacement uh, patients with osteoarthritis, and these were uh, matched to a similar group uh, receiving hip replacement after femoral neck fracture. So they were matched for age and associated comorbidities. And again, there was a huge difference in the rate of complications perioperatively between the osteoarthritic patients and the osteoporosis patients. The osteoarthritic patients were clearly far more physiologically robust than the femoral neck fracture patients. And in a subgroup analysis, what they called a sensitivity analysis, they found that they had approximately 12,500 patients in each group who were under the age of 60, who had received a hip replacement for arthritis or a hip replacement for a femoral neck fracture, but they were able to match them in terms of comorbidities. And again, there was a higher mortality and complication rate in the femoral neck fracture group. now this begs the question, why the difference? We don't really know specifically, but clearly your osteoporotic patients tend to be relatively frail. They've already had the trauma of the fracture. Added to this would be the trauma of an operation. And of course, a bigger operation if you have to undertake acetabular preparation as well. So that surgical insult combined with the traumatic physiological insult, obviously um, can help trigger these complications, which sometimes result unfortunately in mortality. So I think we got to think really carefully about the decision whether uh, an osteoporotic patient with a femoral neck fracture would really stand to benefit from a total hip replacement. We know now there's no obvious functional benefit and I think we have to be careful that we don't subject our uh, more frail patients to uh, a higher rate of potential complications.
0: Thank you. We really do need to be a bit more careful then in selecting patients when we decide that a total hip replacement may be warranted for them in a fractured neck of femur scenario. Uh,
1: I, yeah, I think the um, it is far more nuanced than we previously appreciated. There are some interesting asides because patients come in, they're still playing tennis, they're still very active. Many of these elderly women seem to be busier than busier than I am. Uh, and they may have been on the internet. And of course, they may think that they should have a total hip replacement. So obtaining informed consent can be difficult, but the data is certainly emerging uh, to show that a reasonably performed cemented hemiarthroplasty will, will perform a, as good as a total hip replacement in this group of patient patients, but with uh, reduced complications.
0: That comes on to my next question, which is, you know, as a trainee, I, I really want some of your tips and tricks for how I can perform a good hemiarthroplasty. So any words of wisdom
1: for me? Well, I, it's an operation that continues to evolve We've heard about the improved implant design, and I think uh, most of us would agree that a direct lateral is probably the preferred approach at the moment. Um, This is associated with a reduced dislocation rate. So in my hands, the patient's, uh, the the operation will obviously start with a preoperative templating trying to match the anatomy on the other side. So patients who come in with a femoral neck fracture and they haven't had a pelvic AP, need to go back to the department for a well-centered pelvic AP. And the easy way to obtain that is to ask a radiographer to aim at the symphysis pubis, and then you'll be able to have a good look at the normal side so that you can try and recreate that. Now, for me, when you're doing your templating, you don't want to increase the offset. So in fact, um, I work with a number of surgeons who continue to use a direct lateral for their total hip replacements in arthritic patients, and they would deliberately slightly reduce the offset in order to get a good closure of the abductors. Remember, in the modified Hardinge, not the Hardinge approach, or any of the variations on the direct lateral, You only take a part of the anterior aspect of gluteus medius, but the repair is very important. And one of the big tips for me is to try and get some intraosseous sutures and pass the suture, as well as through the trochanter, but also through the capsule and the muscle. So you really do get a good repair. You don't have to go crazy with the cementing of the stem. Of course, we've got to be careful about the the sudden death implantation syndrome, or it's called something similar, where there's a profound episode of hypertension on uh, either instrumenting or cementing the canal. So it's very important to, as soon as you can, put a sucker down the canal to decompress the canal. And before you really instrument it, and I think you don't have to really super pressurize the cement. Um, we know that polished cemented stems, very low incidence of aseptic loosening. So you don't have to fall cementing technique. And the other thing I think that is a good tip is to think about the orientation of the neck of the implant. For me, you want to avoid, you don't want to really recreate the normal antiversion. If your hemi is going to dislocate, it will dislocate out the front. So I tend to reduce the physiological antiversion and perhaps put the stem in a more neutral orientation, which is what Charlie used to do when he was performing a trochanteric osteotomy. The other big tip is you don't want to be struggling when you do your final reduction. I do not tend to do a trial reduction. I think if you do a trial reduction with a trial bipolar head, there's a risk of introducing a torque to the proximal femur, which of course is osteoporotic and you could cause an iatrogenic fracture. And I think equally the final reduction after you've cemented your implant and put on the bipolar needs to be gentle. You've got a suture in the capsule and the muscle, so no soft tissue gets trapped, but you want it to go in relatively easily. So I tend to slightly sink the stem more than perhaps I've templated for. And let's remember the commonest cause of complaint after any sort of hip replacement is a long is associated with a long leg. You don't want your patient to be long. If they're slightly short, they won't notice. So that, combined with a very um, sound repair, would be my major operative tips.
0: Thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much for your time today, Mr. Pierce. And um, I'm eagerly awaiting your critique at our upcoming Metalwork meeting, where you'll look at some of the HEMIs I did over the weekend.
1: Well, Akib, I'm sure I'll be gentle with you, but I look forward to reviewing them. And thank you for inviting me to contribute to the podcast.